Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his sons, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we open your word and we seek to understand it, God, I pray that you would give understanding. Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us. I pray that you would take your word, apply it to our hearts today. Lord, lead us into understanding, an understanding that helps us to stand in awe of who you are and what you've done in Christ for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are starting chapter 2. Thank you very much. We're starting chapter 2 in the book of John. And as we start chapter 2, we're starting a new, a new section in John, sometimes known as the book of signs. If you were to take a particular work and you divide it into different books or something like that, um, this is starting a, a section where we're going to see the signs of Jesus. And uh, I, I have a slide here that's going to show all the different signs that we're going to encounter. It starts... First, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we're reading through 12 today, but we have the first sign, which is Jesus turning the water into wine. Now, there's an, really some unidentified signs that happen at the Passover feast, and you can read that in chapter 2, verse 23, that some saw the signs that he was doing and believed in him. Um, we don't have the particular record of those signs, though. We don't know what he did. So it's not a particular recorded uh, miracle or sign of Jesus. Go uh, to the second one there, the healing of the official son. You see that in chapter 4. Third one, the healing of the paralytic, chapter 5. The feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6. Walking on water, also chapter 6. The healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And then the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. That's seven signs. And there are eight that most reference, the eighth being, of course, his resurrection from the dead. That's a pretty good miracle that we need to keep on record, right? So there are really eight miracles, if we're not counting the resurrection, um, we're talking about his earthly ministry, then, then we're talking about seven miracles that John is going to walk us through. Seven miracles. And we start the first one today. All right. Uh, I want to remind you of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Remember what it said. Now, Jesus did many other signs. This was his first sign. Many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so these particular miracles are detailed out for a reason. He picked this first sign as the first one that he would detail for a reason. 
Okay, there are many signs that he did, but John only chose seven to record. And here's the first one that we encounter today. All right. A couple things about signs and miracles before we get into this story today. Because signs and miracles, let's just admit, are kind of strange. Signs and wonders and miracles are a funny thing to talk about. Um, I'm going to have to imagine that no one in this room has seen a miracle happen before. I'm guessing that no one has seen water turn into wine. But if you have, I don't know why you haven't told me that story. I mean, that would be a good story for you to tell. I, I don't, I, I, you haven't seen it, I'm guessing, right? You haven't seen someone raised back miraculously from the dead after being dead for four days, right? You've never seen someone walk on water, I don't think. You know, I used to try to walk on water when I was young in the pool. And it was just me and my mom was sitting out there. And I would say, do you think I can walk on water? And she said, well, I, I think if you... If, if you have enough faith and God wants you to walk on water, then you'll walk on water. So I thought, okay. I tried it over and over. <coughs> it never worked. Uh, the people, though, were expecting that the Messiah would come with signs and wonders and miracles. This was going to be one of, the, the, one of, one of the, the things that they were going to be able to really tangibly grab a hold of and say, this must be the Messiah because he's doing signs right? Uh, just two references out of the book of John about that. John 6, 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, it put that background up there so uh, we, can, we can read that. Thank you. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So how did they say, why did they say this is the prophet that's to come into the world? Because of the sign that he had done. So they were anticipating that the great prophet to come into the world would be bringing signs. All right, uh, John chapter 7, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Again, that's John 7, verse 31. Jesus has done this many signs. When the Christ comes, is he going to do more signs than this man has done? Okay, so they're anticipating that when the Christ comes, he will be performing signs, all right? What kind of things did Jesus fulfill? Some Old Testament prophecies. Look at, we'll look at uh, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. I've got that on the screen for you. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Look at what it says. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. All right, notice three things, the blind, the deaf, and the lame. Just note those three references there. Now let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 22. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the good news preached to them. Jesus was saying... I have done these things, I am doing these things, and this is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah, which we are also studying. These two books work very well together. As you've seen, we constantly are referencing one to the other. So the prophecy of what the Messiah would do when he would come, Jesus was fulfilling. How? By signs and wonders and miracles. Rece making a blind man receive his sight. Now, you might say, but there are people who work miracles today. 
Uh, people say they do these kind of things, um, these big healing. Now, we're going to be talking quite a bit about that on Wednesdays coming up, if you're interested in that idea. We're going to be talking about that in some more detail. But what we need to understand fundamentally is that when Jesus performed miracles, these miracles were instantaneous and complete. Instantaneous and complete. There was a man who was blind from birth, and instantly he could see, and he could see perfectly well. Right? It didn't, he didn't say a healing has begun a work in you and, you know, over the course of these next, uh, you know, your course of your lifetime, you'll start to be able to see a little bit better eventually. It's not how it worked, was it? When there was someone who couldn't walk, the healing was instantaneous and complete. They went from not walking to walking instantaneously and completely. Okay? These are the types of miracles that Jesus was performing I want to make a distinction as well between miraculous events and miracles. Miraculous events and miracles. You'll, you'll see what I mean here in a second. Miraculous events are things such as the burning bush. That was a, that was a miraculous event, right? Uh, but did someone work a miracle? Well, no, not necessarily. It was just a miraculous event. How about Jonah and the fish? That, that was a miracle that that happened, right? If you don't think it was, then I don't think you understand the story. That was a miracle that, that happened there. What about the story that, that, that Jimmy was referencing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, that was a miraculous event that those men survived, right? But there wasn't a particular individual who worked a miracle. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, miraculous event. How about Pentecost? Is that a miraculous event? But there wasn't anybody who worked a miracle, Okay, the distinction between miraculous events and people working miracles. I want to look at three individuals who were agents of miracles, uh, two, kind of three, from the Old Testament, and then one from the New Testament. Okay, the first person we see is Moses. He was, a, he was an agent of miracles in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 4.17 Take this in your hand, take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. Now that was the beginning. What kind of miracles did God work through him? Well, all kinds of stuff. Uh, stuff that the magicians tried to do, and they did okay for a while, but they, they couldn't do what Moses was doing, right? Uh, the parting of the Red Sea, was that a miraculous event? And was there an agent that worked through it? I need you to see that God worked miracles through an agent in this particular story. It wasn't just a miraculous event, even though it was, but he chose to use someone to perform that miracle. Okay? So there is a high concentration of miracles surrounding the ministry of Moses, if we want to call it a ministry, right? Or during the time of Moses and his leading. The next time we see a concentration of miracles is during the time of Elijah, <clears throat> closely associated with Elisha. Excuse me. First ah. Kings 17 and 18, Second Kings 1 through 6, and then 13 as well. Chapter 13 is when Elisha is dead and his body is buried and someone dies and they throw his body in the hole in the ground where his bones were, and he comes back to life just because he touched the bones of Elisha. You remember that story? That was a miraculous 
event, but did anybody work a miracle? No, there wasn't a person working a miracle, even though it happened through Elijah, but he was dead. All right, but Elijah, there's, there's, you can go back and read in those particular chapters there, a high concentration of miracles surrounding Elijah. It is said that a concentration of miracles by an individual always accompany a time of revelation. Miracles belong to revelation periods. What was being revealed during the time of Moses? Well, quite a lot, wouldn't you say? <laughs> quite a lot. This is when the Ten Commandments uh, were given to the people. God was guiding them into the promised land. There was much being done. Now, Elijah, Elijah marks the time of the ministry of the prophets. After him, we have prophets over and over again from about 850 to about the year 400 uh, B.C., there's a line of prophets that come after Elijah, but who begins? It's Elijah. Okay, remember? How did John the Baptist come? In the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist marks the end of that type of prophetic ministry when Jesus comes. Okay, so Elijah to John the Baptist. The only other time we see a high concentration of miracles is when Jesus comes. Moses, an agent of God's miracles, Elijah, and secondarily, Elisha, an agent of working miracles, and then Jesus comes along. Here's the significant event, the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verses 2 and 3. Let's look at who was there. He was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light, and behold, three, or there appeared to him, excuse me, and behold, there appeared to them, Moses and Elijah talking with him, that is Jesus. There are three individuals who meet together. And wouldn't you know it, it's the three agents of God's miracles and, the, and those people uh, special to revelation periods throughout the history, right? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And what are they doing? Conversing together. Okay, you have the person who brought the Ten Commandments and the law of God. You have a person who begins a prophetic career for Israel. And then you have Jesus, the mouthpieces of God, right? A significant point as we get started is this. It's very simple. We already know this, but let's know it in light of what we've just said. Jesus is God's greatest agent of revelation, right? Is Jesus greater than Moses? Yes. Is Jesus greater than Elijah? Yes, is he a greater prophet than Elijah? Yes. Did he understand the law better than Moses? Yes. Jesus is God's greatest agent of revelation, so wouldn't you have to say that he is probably going to be the person who also does the most signs and wonders? Because that's generally, or historically, how God has done it. When there is a time of revelation, God accompanies that revelation with signs and wonders to say, the power, the message, and the authority comes from God himself because who else can do these things? So it's a confirmation of what's being done. I want to read one more passage before we get to our text. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what it says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders 
and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's talk about those three words. Signs, wonders, and the real word is powers. The word miracle is a word we just kind of made up to uh, accompany all three of these words. Okay, so a miracle is a sign, a wonder, a power, and sometimes different words are used for different reasons. When you think a sign, a sign points at something else. A sign is there to signify something else. Now, this is John's favorite word. John always used the word, uses the word sign when he's talking about a miracle, a miraculous event. He never uses the word wonder. He doesn't use the word power or miracle. He uses the word sign. Okay, why? Because he wants us to see that Jesus was the Son of God. So every time there's a sign, what is that sign pointing to? Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he wants us to see. Can't you see that this miracle shows us that he's the Son of God? That's what he wants us to know. So every time it points at Jesus is the Son of God. But there's also other words, wonders. They provoke awe. How did this happen? Right? And then there are powers. It proves ability that it, someone can't do this alone. They have to have an external power because you're just a man. Well, a man can't do this. So there must be some other source of power. Okay, so we have signs, wonders, and powers. John likes to use the word signs. And that's, that's what we're looking at, the first sign that Jesus did. All right? So let's look at our text. The first sign that Jesus did, and it's a weird one. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus uh, was also invited and to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, let's just stop right there for a minute. On the third day, this is not the third day since the encounter with John the Baptist. There's been way more than three days happened since then, since that event. The third day most likely references his third day in the region of Galilee. So here's that map again. Just, let's just rem remember where they're at. Bethany down there in the south, beyond the Jordan. There's two different Bethanies. The Bethany beyond the Jordan, that yellow dot at the bottom, that's where the baptism of John was taking place. That's where they were before. And then they traveled north up to the region of Galilee. The region of Galilee is that large yellow circle. And they are now in the small uh, area of Cana, which is that uh, small yellow circle up there in the north. So this is where they are. They're in the region of Galilee. And, and again, most likely the third day means the third day that they were in that region. The third day they were in that region, there was a, uh, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Okay, let's good with that. So there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. We need to look at the wording there. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited along with his disciples. You're going to see that Mary has a particular role to play at this wedding. It's most likely the case that this was a close family friend or even relative of Jesus and his family. And you're going to see why as we continue on, but the mother of Jesus was there. That is, she was already there and had a role to play, and Jesus was invited to the wedding along with his disciples. Well, what disciples? Well, think of the 12 because that wasn't a reality yet, but the ones that he had come across so far, who were John, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Okay, so it's Jesus and five disciples, so six guys. Now, the details are important to this story because, after all, John recorded this sign in detail, and so I don't think he gave us anything that we didn't need to know. So we're going to see what the story has to say. Let's look on at verse 3. Okay, so they're at the wedding. 
Verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Okay. A couple interesting things here about this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, Mary comes and takes a role here of being the one in charge for the whole wedding of making sure that they have more wine. Why Mary? Why does Mary step up and say they have no wine? Shouldn't this have been someone else's responsibility, you know, someone who had a role to play? Which is exactly why it's believed that Mary had a large role to play at this wedding, that she was actually responsible for making sure that they had more wine. All right, so they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that word woman, there is a big dispute about. It, it most closely relates to our word ma'am. Ma'am, that has nothing to do with me. That is, it's polite, but it's kind of formal, but it's not a, a, it's a strange word to use in that circumstance, right? What does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. Now, the wedding celebration could last about a week. It's very significant detail that the groom, called the bridegroom, the groom was financially responsible for all of the details of the wedding feast. If he did not meet his financial requirements, the contract with the person that he was going to marry could be broken. It was a very significant event that they ran out of wine at the wedding feast because this could have meant that there could have been legal ramifications to the wedding. The wedding could have been called off because he wasn't fulfilling his role. Does that make sense? So it's very significant. He would have brought shame to his family. Um, he would have been very embarrassed. It would have been a very awkward situation. And so Mary says, we have to fix this so that there's no problem. So Mary goes to Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. Now, another question we have to ask is, why does she go to Jesus? Don't you notice... Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, that Joseph isn't in any of these stories. The last time we really encountered Joseph is when Jesus is 12, and they take that trip to Jerusalem. And he's not even mentioned by name, it just says, and his parents. But Joseph is there, at least when Jesus is 12, but it's most likely the case that he had died. He's not around. His father wasn't around. So she probably has come to rely on Jesus as the oldest son, firstborn son, he now kind of takes that role to fill the place of his father. So she comes and she says, Jesus, there's a problem. It's kind of my responsibility. You need to help me fulfill this obligation because this is a big deal. So she goes to Jesus. They have no wine. Jesus' response to her is, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> it's your problem, isn't it? Now, is that a very good thing for a son to say to a mom when she comes to him for help? I need help. Okay, what's that have to do with me? Mind your own business. I got things I got to do. I'm at a party. I'm trying to eat. Now, we know that's obviously not the way he meant it, right? So he meant it in a different way. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And listen to her response to that. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. As if to say, listen, I know you're going to fix this. And you're going to fix it right now. 
So the servants, they're yours. And she's, again, she has a role, right? Why would the servants of a wedding feast listen to some random guest? Because she's significant at this wedding. So she says to the servants, listen to Jesus and do whatever he tells you because we have to fix this problem. We have to fix it now. The question is, though, did she expect him to perform a miracle? Or did she expect him to produce some kind of wine by other means? Maybe by natural means. I mean, he had a bunch of friends, right? Six guys. Go figure this out. We have to have more wine, okay? Send your son and his five friends to go figure this thing out. You got other things to do, right? But did she expect him to perform a miracle? It's debated, really. It's, and it's, we can't really answer that. It's hard to say. But his answer is, my hour has not yet come. His hour for what? He's going to leave here. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the feast, and he's going to do some other miracles. So he's probably not saying, my hour for people knowing who I am hasn't come, because also John the Baptist kind of let that cat out of the bag anyway, didn't he? He already said, this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's kind of been already been revealed. So what is he saying? Um, my time has not yet come. Some believe that he's basically saying, don't you think I know about the situation? Um, I will take care of it, and you know that I will. Others believe that she was asking him to perform a miracle, and he's saying it's not my time yet. That is, it's not my time to start performing miracles yet. But then he does it anyway, right? But then he does it anyway. Not really sure what's happening there. Um, people are really undecided and basically say, we just have to continue on in the story and see what is revealed to us clearly. Was Mary expecting him to do a miracle or was she expecting him to fix the situation by natural means? Not really sure. What way do I lean? I think that she knew very well who he was and what he was capable of. And she also expected the Messiah to do signs and wonders, did she not? And if there was anyone who believed that he was the Messiah, you think it was his mom who went through all those circumstances there at the beginning? Uh, I believe that she was saying, you, were ju you just had this big situation. People know who you are. You have disciples now. You're being revealed to the world. Go ahead and start now. This, is a, this was a big situation for him to fix, and she needed his help. I, I think there's a, a pretty good case here that she actually is asking him to do something miraculous. But he hadn't done anything miraculous yet. That story of Jesus and the clay bird situation, you know that that's not scripture, right? If you've heard that story. Okay, if you don't know about it, that's good. Don't, you don't need to know about it. All right? So it, it's not scripture. So Jesus had not done any miracles up to this point. Okay? Now, let's look at verse 6. And we're going to read a good little chunk here. Verse 6. Setting the scene. That's all we're doing. Now, here's what happens. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jew Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw out some, take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, they did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Okay, let's just be real plain about the story. There is a wedding party, and they run out of wine, and it's a big deal, and Jesus now makes more for the party. 
That's its basic version. How much did he make? 120 to 180 gallons. That's how much he made. That's a lot. I mean, and that's a, first of all, that's a big party if that's how much they need. It says they filled it to the brim. Some believe, because they don't like the miraculous events in Scripture, some believe that Jesus took the little bit of remaining wine and he mixed it, he diluted it with water. But that even in the details of the story, that can't be the case. First of all, it says it became wine. Okay, that's all we need, really. But they filled it to the brim with water. All of it is water. These big containers are only filled with water, 100% water. Okay? Then, um, he, they take a little bit of it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast, that sounds like a pretty grand title. He was basically the person in charge of tasting everything before it was served to the guests to make sure that everything was okay. All right? Mary had her role. We don't know what her title was, if she had a title. But it was not her. So they took some out. The servants did. They scooped it. And they took it to the person who does all the tasting. And what was his response about the wine? His response was, most people serve the bad stuff first, or the, the good stuff first, and then after people have drunk freely, the literal term there is become intoxicated. When the people are drunk, then they start to serve the cheap stuff. Okay, so you understand what's happening there. The normal custom was you serve the good stuff first because people have their senses about them, right? They can taste. They, they know what's going on. But when they become drunk, you start to serve the cheap stuff and the diluted stuff because they don't know what they're drinking anyway. So that's the way you save some money. Okay, so, but he says, you have saved the best stuff for now because we know the party's been going on for a while because they already ran out of the wine that they had. So the party's been going on for a while. Jesus brings in the new stuff and it is the best stuff that he's tasted at this party so far. All right, the water had become wine. Let's talk about what it became and what it did not become, okay? As I enter into this conversation about what this substance is, some of you possibly may be challenged by what I'm about to say. Others of you not. I just want to warn you before we get into that, and I understand it, okay? He says most people leave the bad, or leave the bad stuff till the end, and give the good stuff first, but you have given the good wine last. What made this wine good? It was common at the time that wine was diluted by 1 to 3 or up to a 1 to 10 ratio of water because it was a kind of a thick sludge type of substance when it was first made. So it was diluted with water for drinkability. It was more like a drink rather than a, a smoothie, <laughs> right? It was more like that than, than kind of this uh, thick substance. So it was diluted with water. Now, the most, uh, the most alcohol content that the wine could have at that time was around 10%. Most commonly, though, the alcohol content was from 4 to 6%, which is about what modern American beer is, somewhere around 4 to 6%, okay? Could it be the case 
that there was a party, a wedding party, serving alcohol, and they ran out, and Jesus made gallons more for the party, alcohol for the party. Now, some cringe at that fact, but it was a historical reality. The people at that time would not have said, oh, the good stuff that doesn't contain alcohol. They wouldn't have said that. I mean, that's, that, that's the reality of the situation. No one says, oh, the good wine, the stuff that doesn't contain alcohol. They knew what good wine was. In fact, Luke 5.39, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good, right? The aged wine. And we know that as age wines, the alcohol the content grows, all right? That's what they called the good wine in that circumstance. Now, could it be that Jesus would provide this? Luke 7, verses 33 and 34, significant verses. Luke 7, 33 and 34. This is Jesus speaking. Listen to what he says. John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. Because who does that? Right? Verse 34. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. What Jesus was drinking could have made him intoxicated, could have made him drunk. Was Jesus ever drunk? No, because drunkenness is sin. But did Jesus drink alcohol? The historical reality is yes, he did. And when there was a wedding party going on serving wine, alcoholic wine, he made more for the party. Now, if that's hard for you to take in, it's because we have an Americanized version, a Westernized version, particularly a Southern, not Southern Baptist, capital S, but Southern States Baptist version of alcohol. Okay, that is not a historical biblical view. All right, I just need you to absorb that. And if that's a struggle for you, we can talk about that a little more. But that's the reality is that there was alcoholic wine here, all right? And Jesus made more of it. And at the Last Supper, they were drinking alcohol. Uh, they were drinking wine at the Last Supper. Uh, it, as soon as you crush a grape, it begins to ferment immediately. And they say the new stuff isn't the best. The old stuff's the best. What was served at the party? The good stuff, okay? But still, don't think of it as modern wine, which is about 13 to 17% alcohol. More so, it was around 5 to 6% alcohol. Okay, if you're concerned with those details. All right, now, so that is the substance that was created. The substance that was created was aged, alcoholic wine from water. In, in, in fact, isn't that really a part of the miracle? Is that Jesus created something aged out of something not aged? He created something that would have taken a long time, and he made it instantaneously? That's part of the miracle there. Okay, so uh, when the people have drunk freely, they give the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. That's the last thing we read. Then look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, his mother with him and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This was the first of his signs that he did at Canaan and Galilee. He actually comes back and he'll do uh, some more at Cana in Galilee. Um, Galilee was his, his hometown. That, that was where he was from, right? Galilee. Um, not necessarily Nazareth, 
they didn't really like him there. Couldn't do much there. But the region, yes. Um, let's look at two things. Two things that I want us to take away as applications from this story. Number one. The first thing that we see is the light of his glory. I want to see how that's played out. This, the first of his signs, Jesus at Canaan Galilee, he manifested his glory. When Jesus performed this miracle, he manifested his glory. What does that word manifested mean? It's used already by John in chapter 1, verse 31, uh, that John the Baptist said, I myself did not know, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. It's that word revealed. He revealed his glory when he did this miracle. He revealed his glorious nature when he did this miracle. Now, who saw it? Who saw the glory revealed? Did the master of the feast? Who did the master of the feast call over and say, whoa, what are you serving here? He called the bridegroom. Why? Because he was financially responsible. He said, you served it. He thought the groom had everything to do with it. He didn't know about Jesus and the disciples. The masses didn't know that the miracle took place. Isn't that unbelievable that such a miracle could take place, but the masses of people there, they had no idea. But who knew? Well, Mary knew, right? The servants knew and the disciples knew. But who believed because of it? The disciples. It says, and the disciples believed in him. That's that second half of verse 11. They saw his glory. This must be who he said he was. Now, we heard John say it. We heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw John say it. We heard him. We believed him. And we started following him. And he's got a lot of really wise things to say. But then this, uh, these five disciples, what do they see? John being one of them, the one who wrote the very gospel that we're reading, he saw it happen. This was such a memorable event for him that no wonder it's the first thing recorded. Now, this is the first thing he did when he manifested his glory. Listen to what he did. Now, this isn't a huge public spectacle here. Could have been, but it wasn't. But let me tell you what he did. And he gives us the details. Why? Because he was there when it happened. Unbelievable. John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. So the son has glory? So no wonder he says he manifested his glory. Why? Because he's the son of God. And, I, and that's what he wants us to see. He manifested glory. Why? Because he's the son of God, and the son of God has the glory of the Father. In fact, he is the radiance of the glory of God. If anybody's going to be filled with glory, it's going to be Jesus. And this is what he did when he started. And he, he revealed his glory, and we got a taste of it. We saw the light of it. We saw Jesus for who he is. He is powerful. He is unique. But you know what? He's also caring and merciful, isn't he? Don't you see that in the story too? His mom asked him for help, and this family needed a favor. Now, was it by chance that Jesus was there? And he's like, oh, good opportunity for me to do a miracle. I'm glad we were here. <laughs> you know, that's not what happened, right? Of course, it was determined. Of course, he knew what he was doing there. And they ran out of wine on purpose, right? Again, not an accident so that he could manifest his glory. Okay, here's, here's some of the application I want you to see. Later on in John chapter 17, I'm going to read a couple of verses. Here's what he says about this glory of the Son. Here's what he says. I do not ask, this is Jesus praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. 
are we those who believe through their word? Yes. That's what we're doing right now is we're reading their word. And we are believing because of their word. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am in them, you are in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The glory that was revealed or made manifest at that time is the glory now that Jesus has shared with us and is at work in us today. The glory that was made manifest in that time during that miracle, the glory that was revealed, is a glory that Jesus has shared with us that is at work in us today. Now let me ask you a really basic question here. What is more unbelievable, that Jesus could take water and turn it into wine, or that he could take your heart of stone and turn it into flesh? What is more unbelievable? That he would take those who are dead spiritually and raise them to life. Far more unbelievable that he could do that transformation than the transformation of water into wine. That is nothing compared to what he was going to do. But we got a taste of it, didn't we? We got a taste of it. We saw a glimpse of the glory of God. And now, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all with an unveiled face are beholding the glory of God. And because we are beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The glory of God being shared with us is transforming us. The transformative power of God is at work in you today. Jesus came to transform things. He came to transform you. Does your transformation save you? <laughs> An odd question. If we're talking about our sanctification, our process of sanctification, no, that, that doesn't save you because you can be saved and then die one second later and yet be saved. So, our sanctification, that process can't save us. But yet, are we transformed continually in this life and sanctified? Yes. Hopefully in, until the day we die, we are on a forward progression. But sometimes we just have set, setbacks, don't we? Sometimes we have setbacks, and it seems like that transforming power is not really working maybe the way it used to. Maybe it's lost some of its luster. <laughs> maybe it's, you know, it's not quite as powerful as it used to be. But let me tell you, it is every bit as powerful as it was. We need to have faith and believe. And isn't it encouraging to see that transformative work in other people? When the Lord changes you, and I see it, it's just like the disciples seeing this water turn to wine and they believed. Because I saw that miracle, I believe. And every time I see a change in you, and I see the Lord get you through something. I believe. The Lord did that for me because now I believe. Because without the Lord, you would not have been able to You would not have been able to overcome that. But I saw it. I saw it happen. And I believe. I want to encourage you to share more with each other of what the Lord is doing in your life when he changes you. When he transforms you. 
But now what does that take? It takes you admitting that you needed to be changed. So unfortunately, there's a, you know, a negative side to that. You've got you to reveal that you're not perfect in order to say that Jesus is changing you. His spirit in you is changing you. Right? The transformative power of God is at work in us today. Yes. Second thing. Second thing I want us to see is the lavishness of his grace because we, weren't, we didn't just see grace in this situation. We saw abundant grace in this situation. All right? He takes these jugs that were meant for Jewish purification. First of all, let's see the symbolism in that. He takes some external rite that you would wash your body, right? And he says, I'm going to transform it. I'm going to make it into something way better. And he takes it something that is now internal. You ingest this now. Instead of pouring it over you, it's something that flows from the inside. He completely takes this old system, wipes it out, transforms it into something new. What does Jesus make in this situation? Excuse me. I want to remind you of a text that we read here just a few weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. You'll, re you'll remember this as soon as I read it. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, of, full, of rich, full food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. You remember, you remember studying that passage? Isaiah 55 as well goes into that, about this feast. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come to me who has no money. Come and buy and eat. Come and buy with no money. Come and buy wine and milk and, and without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. When Jesus makes this wine, does he just make a cup full, a glass full, a couple of bottles full? Or does he make over a hundred gallons of wine for this party. But yeah, he, he makes more than enough. Don't we see the abundant riches of his grace in this circumstance? First of all, he provided something that was not necessary. Don't you already see that? Was it absolutely necessary that there be more wine at this party? No, they could have done without, right? It might not have been good, but they could have done without. But what does he do? He provides it anyway, doesn't he? And does he provide just enough or does he provide a lot? He provides more than enough. And does he provide just okay wine or does he provide really, really good wine? Did he need to do that? No, he didn't need to do that. But he goes above and beyond to provide in excess that it might be enjoyed. Now, does he still operate that way today? The, we, the, the feast that we are invited to says a people will feast on rich food. Does it have to be rich food or, or can it just be like, you know, kale? You know, it's like it's good for you. It doesn't taste super great, but it's good for you, so it's good enough. Or does he give us rich food that we might enjoy and well-aged wine that it might be given and, and drank and, and enjoyed Good food, rich food, well-aged, refined wine, not just enough to survive, but a lavish banquet. When do we get to taste of that? When we come to Christ. When we come to Christ is when we taste of that. Do you remember what Jesus said? 
John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the groom and we are his bride. He has provided everything for the feast. And do you think he skimped by in any detail? Do you think he only gave a little bit? At my wedding, we had, I think, barely, barely enough food. I didn't even get to eat any of my groom's cake. But the lady uh, that made it actually made me another one because she felt bad, right? Uh, and, and I got to have some. But, you know, we're limited by our resources as far as what we can provide, aren't we? Is Jesus limited by resources of what he can provide? He's not. And what, what have we seen him do over and over? He provides in abundance. He provides rich things for his people. Is that the Jesus you know? Or do you think that Jesus just <coughs> kind of like maybe your mom or your wife in some circumstances gives you what you know is good for you, but it doesn't really necessarily, you know, tickle your fancy. Not really what I wanted. It's not what tastes good to me really, but I know it's good for me, I guess. Or does God provide things that you actually will enjoy? Yes. I'm going to finish with one passage, and so I'd like for you to turn there with me, please, if you would. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. We're continuing as we talk about this lavishness of grace. This is not something that we just glean from a story, okay? This isn't just some fancy way of me making something up so I had a talking point. All right, this is a reality, and we see this reality displayed in the story, okay? And I want to prove that to you as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. I want you to see it. I want you to see how much grace that he gives us. Now, I want you to pick up on words like riches and grace and blessing and all this kind of stuff, okay? Pick up on those words as we read. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, stop right there. That's only one verse so far, and it's already pretty good. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. How do we get the rich blessings of God? In the beloved, in Jesus Christ. Now verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That is, give in excess. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the way that our Savior treats his people. This is what God has done for us in Christ, is that all the blessings in the heavenly, all heavenly blessings, all of them, have been lavished upon us by his grace. Of course, the question then is, well, then why do I feel so kind of not good? I don't feel like I'm living in the midst of 
blessing in abundance, right? Spiritual blessings. Spiritual abundance. I just, I feel like every day is a hard mountain I have to climb, and I wake up, and I'm back at the bottom of the mountain, and I have to climb it again. The blessings of God, yes, are for us to enjoy. And they are rich and abundant. But you also need to understand that you will not taste them in their fullness until you die. You will not taste them in their fullness until you die. This world is riddled with sin. You have a sin nature that you're still trying to battle. You are not perfected in the sense of entirely holy as he is holy. Even though in God's eyes we are justified and seen as holy, doesn't mean that we are living perfectly holy lives, which means what? That we are not living in the midst of blessing. But what did it mean for a man such as Jesus who never sinned? What did blessing look like in his life? means that he lived for 30 years and then the last three years of his life were absolute torture and they ended in a bloody gruesome death. That's what blessing looked like in his life. What does blessing look like in your life? Sometimes it's difficult to see that it is a blessing. But sometimes, and let's not diminish this, sometimes it is so easy to see that something is a blessing. Somebody ever said to you, I just want to be a blessing to you? You can be a blessing to other people. You can be God's agent of blessing to someone else. You can. And you should try. You should try to also recognize when God does things in your life. You say, you did not have to do that for me. What a grace of God that you would. What a grace that you would give that to me. You are a God of gracious rich blessings that I get to feast in every day. And I'm sorry when I start to see that, gosh, you just give me such rich food all the time, I don't really want it anymore. Or it starts to become bland. The food hasn't changed. Your taste has changed. You're not seeing what once was a blessing. You're not seeing it as a blessing anymore. You've become numb to it. God is not the problem. Our taste is the problem. Our sin is the problem. Our perception is the problem. Our God is a God of rich abundance and blessing and grace. He is the God we serve. He is the God who has saved us. He is the God who drew us all here this morning for this purpose together. And he is the God we serve. 